Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. From Crooked Media, this isn't holier than thou. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. You could be forgiven for believing an assumption that's taken hold in the mainstream that transgender people are, quote, a new phenomenon. After all, it's only been recently that society even somewhat allowed for transgender people to be front and center. There was the groundbreaking role played by Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black, or the ballroom scenes depicted on Pose. There were the seminal books and the famous speech at the Women's March by the activist, writer, and director Janet Mock. During that speech, she called the nation to stand up for trans rights. So we are here. We are here not merely to gather, but to move, right? And our movements, our movements require us to do more than just show up and say the right words. It requires us to break out of our comfort zones and be confrontational. It requires us to defend one another. Then there's the work of Tourmaline, an earlier guest on this very podcast, who uplifted the life and work of Marsha P. Johnson, a Stonewall legend. And there have been the many ongoing, arduous legal battles and protests demanding equal rights for trans people, a fight that has met a formidable and hateful opponent in the Trump administration and its conservative Christian base. Perhaps this wave of representation and activism has caused you too to believe that transgender folks have just arrived or that their movement is new to the LGBTQ community. But of course, you would be wrong. In fact, once upon a time, in a world before Christ, before Christianity, before colonization, gender nonconforming people not only existed all over our world, they thrived. That's an important history I've learned from Gina Rosero, a model, activist, and producer who's been uplifting the rich spiritual culture of her homeland, the Philippines. In 2014, Gina exploded onto the international stage when, during her TED Talk, she publicly disclosed that she's transgender for the very first time. I could no longer live my truth for and by myself. I want to do my best to help others live their truth without shame and terror. My deepest truth allowed me to accept who I am. Will you? As Gina embarked on a partnership with the UN to elevate the voices of trans people worldwide, she found that her life's work and mission was also a deep, ancestral, and spiritual calling. Gina Rosero, welcome to Unholier Than Thou. It's an honor to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, finally. <laughs> <laughs> I know it has been a while that we've been planning, plotting this episode, so I'm grateful that you're here. But before we dive into all of that, I'm wondering if you can give us the Cliff's Notes of Gina Rosero's Rise to Fame. <laughs> well, many things. Let's focus here. <laughs> Um, 
you know, obviously born and raised in the Philippines, and then I moved to New York City in 2005 with a dream of wanting to be a model. But at the time, you know, being an out and proud trans model was not allowed. So I was in the closet. I was living stealth. Um, my model agent did not know I was trans. So I was, you know, in stealth and for many years, for close to eight years. And in 2014, I made the decision after many years of living that life, I've had enough. So I did the TED Talk. I came out on the big TED conference stage and that went viral. And then from that moment on, I you know, started traveling the world, launched an advocacy, gender proud and a production company and started producing trans gender nonconforming projects. And then last year, I was announced as the first trans-Asian Playboy Playmate. And this year, I became the first transgender person part of Playboy Playmates of the Year. Wow. Well, it's been such a journey. And also, it's been so nice to witness you on this journey. Because not only do you show up in all of the ways that are so important for the culture and for visibility, but I've also seen you, I mean, I could turn around at any given protest in New York City, and you were right there in the in the thick of it. You know what I mean? Gado. You mean, whatever moment where we could... You know, just share the space and be in that moment. Yes, anywhere I could offer, you know, the, the perspective and the space. And obviously to be with um, chosen family is always a thing that I treasure. Mm. You know, you once told me that your upbringing in the Philippines uh, felt like a, quote, walking contradiction. Can you explain <laughs> why that is? It really was. Um, let me see. So growing up in the Philippines, especially as a young, effeminate trans girl, Within that existing within the culture of this super hyper conservative Catholic culture, we with that also comes this culture of tr- very mainstream transgender beauty pageants, where it's a considered a common thing to see. You know, in in our culture, you see pageants, um, the city, town to a pageant that's broadcasted on national television, where the whole family's watching to a pageant in inside the 20,000 Coliseum, to a pageant where, a trans pageant, where it's a made-up back-of-a-truck stage, you know? So it exists in all layers of places in the Philippines, whether you're in the city or, like, in the little provinces, in the mountain villages, next to a rice field. There's trans pageants that happens all the time. But usually these pageants that ho- happen throughout the year happens during the most conservative Catholic tradition. Wait a minute. So you're saying that in a country that is renowned worldwide for being extremely Catholic, not just like run-of-the-mill Sunday Catholic, but extremely Catholic like the Philippines is, you're telling me that there are also almost athletic devotion to transgender beauty pageants? (laughs) Yes. So like the Super Bowl kind of a thing? Oh, it is. I mean, some have said that beauty pageants, specifically trans beauty pageants, should be the national sport of the Philippines. (laughs) (laughs) We love our pageants. Like, we're so devoted. I mean, we won passionate fans, but also so much of the queens uh, that have won Miss Universe also came from the Philippines. So we're really super devoted when it comes to pageants. But specifically trans pageant uh, is, is part of our culture. 
That is really something. So <laughs> how do these transgender beauty pageants coexist with the Catholic Church having such a tight grip on all of the local communities in the Philippines? It's just not an issue? Well, no, absolutely not. You know, it's a, so here's a little, you know, as every time I've, I've told and shared this story, people would, the first, especially from a Western context, people would always say, oh, you mean trans people are accepted in the Philippines? Oh, you mean, you know, it's accepted as part of the culture? It's really not. So because it's part of this uh, mainstream cultural celebration for the people like, that's in part of um, sort of the organizing committee in that, that includes the church, usually that includes the, the city officials, it's part of the government, it's part of the budget from the governments. But what happens for this is usually for, for them is part of an entertainment. So yeah, in other words, trans folks are made a spectacle of, but they're not necessarily accepted and protected under the law or accepted by general society once the pageant is over. Yeah. The way I'm explaining it to people is that in the Philippines, is uh, trans people are culturally visible, but not politically recognized. Mm, I understand that. Meaning there are no rights. Yeah, there are no rights for trans people in the Philippines. There are no you know, anti-discrimination protections. There are no gender recognition policy, access to health. I mean, the most basic thing of access to hormones. I mean, I speak to the local trans community in the Philippines all the time. And there's, you know, you could count in your hand, you know, how many endocrinologists and like medical establishments that supports trans people in a country with close to 105 million population. Mm. And it's interesting because I, I know that, you know, your introduction to the pageants was seeing them on TV. And I remember you telling me that you looked at your mom and said, I want to do that. I think that's me, right? Yeah, I, I think that was important, right? Here in the context, um, when we say representation here in here in the U.S., we always think that, oh, it just started happening, right? We're always grappling with, especially, specifically trans uh, representation in the U.S. It's just in the recent times that you see more of mainstream um, images of trans people and shows and everything. For us, it's been happening since the early 80s, the advent of TV. And and so that's how mainstream it is. And the fact that I could pinpoint that to my mom, that I want to be like them. And even obviously at the time, the word transgender did not exist. So I, I, I was just able to pinpoint to my mom, I want to be like them. And then mom said what? And my mom said, okay, you know, it's, I think because <laughs> when I started doing that, it's been, there's many things that's been happening in the way I've expressed myself. For example, mm -hmm. I certainly got to the point when I was, you know, five years old where I would always wear the t-shirt on my head or the, or the towel. And my, it just got to the, I, you know, would always parade on, on our neighborhood in the little alley where I grew up. And my mom asked me, why do you always do that? Why do you always put the t-shirt on your head? And I said, mom... I'm a girl. This is my hair. So I've been, in a way, self-identifying that's leading up to that point when I was able to pinpoint to my mom about the transgender beauty passion. So it didn't come as a big surprise. And, you know, they, my mom didn't scold me. She just, it just felt like a natural thing for her to to, to see. One of the reasons that the pageants fascinate me, and by the way, the ongoing success of these pageants and their, and their popularization in a certain way fascinates me is because to me, it shows a little bit of the resistance to colonialism. It shows how there are remnants of the 
I guess, of the rich history and the cultural dynamics of the Philippines that still prevail today. So if we can go back into time, can you explain to me what gender looked like maybe before the Spanish arrived in the Philippines? Absolutely. I mean, it's such a rich history. And I always say that gender binary and the idea of gender rigid binary is a product of colonization, especially within the context of pre-colonized societies around Asia and Polynesia and all that society. So in the Philippines specifically, before we were colonized by Spain for, you know, more than 300 years, gender and the idea of gender fluidity has always existed in the Philippines. Philippines is a predominantly, you know, Catholic um, culture. So obviously the power of the priests is, is, you know, you could really feel it's there. But before the spiritual healers and their spiritual leaders in the Philippines are actually called, this word called babaylan. They were, they played a very central role in society at the time in the Philippines. Philippines is a big archipelago with 7,000 something islands. And so each of those islands have different uh, unit of society. And each of those units of society, there's a spiritual leader. And usually this is a babaylan. And a babaylan is a gender fluid feminine goddess, where it's believed that the way to access the divine is through the feminine spirit. And that particular role um, that exists specifically for a feminine person because trans, gender fluid identities could also inhabit this very powerful role in society. And the idea of a male assigned at birth could be this powerful effeminate spirit as a leader, as a as the way to access the divine. At the time before, you know, the introduction of Christianity in the Philippines is something that I carry with me, something that is so embedded in our culture right now. It's still practiced in many places in the Philippines, outside the capital of the Philippines. So it's this very rich history of gender fluidity and the way how we understood gender is important to always look at most pre-colonized culture. So if I'm understanding correctly, the Babylon were sort of religious, spiritual uh, advisors who were called upon by the nobles or sort of the pseudo-royalty of the time because they were perceived to be um, having a deeper connection to God because of their gender variance. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Um, it's the Babaylan are acts as uh, spiritual advisors, spiritual leaders, healers to the kings and also to the, you know the society. Right. And at the time, you know, gender as the way we're understanding right now here, it's not based on what is your genitalia when you were born. You know, Philippines pre-colonization you know, exists as an egalitarian society. Women have the same rights as men. Women at the time could definitely own properties. Women could divorce their husbands. And a little context here in the Philippines, it's the only country in the world besides the Vatican City where divorce is outlawed. Mm. It's an important point to make, right? Because it's another example of what gender justice could look like if we imagined... um, our, our gender movements, right? And I'm talking about feminism here, being inclusive of gender variance and of trans folks, gender nonconforming folks, 
um, how all of us in society would benefit from that inclusion. Absolutely. And, and to be clear too, the Babylon, I understand, were also able to be in love, have their own households, all of those things. Is that right? All of those powerful um, component of, you know, one would say it's, it's such a feminist society, mm-hmm. you know, and it may come across as this, you know, a dream world. This is what happened. You know, even right now in the Philippines, you still see women leading societies in the Philippines. Like most um, Philippines is comprised of many small businesses. When you go to the provinces in, outside Manila, where you go to the mountain areas, I mean, women still lead societies. Women still are are you know the entrepreneurs they have they have businesses in different areas in the Philippines so it's still very much um you know present right now even my mom my mom was actually the breadwinner growing up mm. my dad was the stay at home he was the best stay at home dad the best cleaner the best cook the best everything my mom was the breadwinner mm-hmm. and it just is that's that, that's how my mom um existed with you know as a teacher and also having an, an extra job i also understand that the deities that were worshipped um, in this pre-colonized society, many of them were trans. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's varied, but certainly there, uh, the presence of trans and gender fluid deities are. It's just part of a you know normal conversation. And you have a favorite of these deities, I understand. I do. I actually, I have the tattoo. I, you know, it's. More than just my favorite. It's in a way, it, it's a way I access, you know, the spirit and the divine now in my life. I actually mm. have a tattoo on my left arm, tattooed in our pre-colonized script called Baybayin. But the tattoo says, La Kapati. And La Kapati is the transgender fluid deity of fertility, golden rice, and compassion. Mm, that is a beautiful Thing to be the deity of. <laughs> I'm just going to be, I'm going to feed you all. <laughs> Celebrate me. Watch my golden. <laughs> so it's a way for me to honor that history, you know, and Lakapati is, is in me. It's the way when I'm having a hard time, when the effects of what's happening right now in the world, you know, it's literally imprinted in my skin forever in my body. It's, it's, it's a tattoo. Right. It's almost like you're um, you're able to tap your ancestral power when it feels like we're living in a world that is designed to really trample trans power. Right. Another thing that we've talked about before uh, is, especially when it comes to language, is the sheer concept of pronouns here in, in English language. And obviously how important they've been in acknowledging others' pronouns has been... Uh, in the fight for a better understanding of really all of really gender variants in general. But in the Philippines, you mentioned that gendered pronouns are not a part of the language. So yeah, in the Philippines, we don't have he or she in our language, our main language, Tagalog. We have, you know, it's depending, but around 150 different dialects, languages in the Philippines. But most of those language does not have he or she. It's gender neutral. We have this word called sia. So it's basically acting as them. You know, some people would use it as that. But certainly we don't have um, binary gendered language in the Philippines. We don't even describe husband and wife. It's just a spouse, you know, asawa in Mm. the Philippines. So it's even that within that context is important. 
you know, Philippines, uh, our main language, Tagalog, is part of this. And I like to also, also talk about, I think last year when Merriam-Webster Dictionary announced that they, as a singular pronoun, right, when they announced as a word of the year, and it was hailed as revolutionary, it's amazing, it's progressive, it's important to situate that in that context here, in the Western context. Mm. But for me, as someone, again, born and raised in the Philippines that doesn't have Hiroshima in their language, it's gender neutral, it's not really revolutionary from our perspective. Right. It seems like a bunch of white people patting themselves on the back. <laughs> Got it. And, and that's that's important. I mean, yes. and that this is why I offer that perspective, you know. I appreciate it. It's important to mention, too, that in a pre-colonized indigenous American society, that trans people in many different indigenous tribes all over America played a similar role to what you're talking about in the Philippines, right? And that in many uh, different indigenous cultures here in America, two-spirit people were also revered and were held in high esteem. And Christianity, similar, similarly to what happened in the Philippines, Christianity also worked to wipe that out and erase that history um, from us. It's really something. <laughs> it is. It's such, it's such um, these are the kind of co- uh, sobering conversations for everyone to, to have. You know, that in as much as, you know, this complicated understanding of white supremacy and the product of colonization, it's important to always unpack this and to always have that global mindset because the products and the effects is still truly felt right now. Gina, thank you so much for this history lesson, for sharing so much of your experience with us and also just for being such a joy to talk to. It is truly always, always, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I embody Lakapati and I am here sharing with you all. So thank you so much again for having me. (laughs) A goddess, okay? A definite goddess. We'll be right back after this break. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Policy Genius. With everything going on right now, a lot of people are asking if it's even possible to buy life insurance at all. The answer is yes. It's still easy to shop for life insurance right now. And if you have loved ones depending on your income, you probably should. Right now, you could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. When you're shopping for a policy that could last for a decade or more, those savings really start to add up. What is Policy Genius? It's an insurance marketplace built and backed by a team of industry experts. Here's how it works. Step one, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Step two, apply for your lowest price. Step three, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance company. So if you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they'll take care of everything. They even have policies which allow eligible customers to skip the in-person medical exam and do it over the phone. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across over 1,600 reviews on Trustpilot and Google. So if you need life insurance, head to policygenius.com right now to get started. You could save $1,500 or more a year by comparing quotes on their marketplace. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. 
I don't know if you guys know this, but I just moved across the country in the middle of a pandemic. And let me tell you something, waking up to fresh new linens and bath towels by Parachute has certainly made Los Angeles feel even more like a home. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Parachute. We believe that when we take care of our home, it takes care of us. Parachute's mission is to make you feel at home. Home is the most comforting word there is. It's where we go to recharge, wash off the day, and rest up for tomorrow. Parachute's everyday essentials are designed in Los Angeles and responsibly manufactured by the world's best craftspeople. They only use the finest materials to make long-lasting, quality home essentials. Parachute linen is light, airy, and casually elegant, giving it timeless appeal. Made in a family-owned factory in Portugal, your linen sheets are made without any harmful chemicals or synthetic softeners, so nothing comes between you and Parachute's naturally comfortable fabrics. Visit ParachuteHome.com unholy for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality, very comfortable home essentials. That's ParachuteHome.com unholy. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It's enlightening and even encouraging to hear from Gina about the historical and spiritual roles that gender nonconforming people once played in society. It also makes our current moment, one where trans people are fighting for basic dignity and equality, all the more frustrating. One of the most prominent activists of the transgender movement is Raquel Willis. She's a writer, speaker, and the former executive editor of Out Magazine. I was lucky enough to once call Raquel a coworker, and now she's a friend. During Pride Month, I got to hear her voice booming across Brooklyn, where 15,000 people had gathered to honor and uplift black trans people. I believe in my power. I believe in my power. I believe in your power. I believe in your power. I believe in our power. Raquel's speech and the thousands gathered there that day was a testament to the progress the movement has made. But for her, it was also a reminder of the many trans women who came before her who weren't valued when they were alive. Hey, Raquel. Hi, Philip. Thanks for joining me. I'm so glad to be on. I was waiting when you'd have me on. <laughs> Of course you were. It is it is a belated welcome. It's funny because we are, um, I've talked to Gina Rosero about the pre-colonized Philippines and the role that trans people played in their society. And it has made me think a lot about the way in which you often talk about drawing on the ancestors, right? I've never heard the phrase, the ancestors more than when I had the pleasure of working with you at Out Magazine. And you often pointed to people like Sylvia Rivera um, or Marsha P. Johnson, you know, trans women who have led and fought for a vision for LGBTQ liberation. And I'm just wondering if you could, how did you tap into this kind of 
appreciation for your ancestors. And what does that ancestral power mean to you? It really was important for me to, especially when I was coming to terms with my gender identity as a woman, to look to the stories of other trans people um, in history. And so I started learning about Marsha P. Johnson, of course, a, a Black trans slash gender nonconforming figure in, in our history, particularly at the Stonewall Riots. And so that is also someone I, I started to, to think about um, as a, a part of this history, this canon of life, um, of queer and trans life that I could lean on as guidance and as support. I think one of the biggest pitfalls sometimes of growing up queer and trans is, is the isolation that happens for many of us. Um, this idea that we're the only ones in the world, but the power that I get from these folks is, it sustains me. It, it reminds me that what I'm doing is a new, how I'm living is a new, how I'm identifying in many ways isn't new, even if we may use different labels today to talk about our experiences. Right. And it goes to show the very pernicious nature of erasure and the ongoing ramifications of erasure and what it has done to generations of people and the potentials that it robbed people of, you know, how many more Marsha P. Johnsons were there that we didn't get to hear from and how many Marsha P. Johnsons never got to fully realize themselves because of the violence that this kind of erasure perpetuates or because of the fear it instills in people you know, white supremacy and certainly Christian white supremacy importing this idea of homophobia and transphobia was able to suppress so much vibrance. It really robbed the world of, of so of so much opportunity. It absolutely did. I, I mean, it's it not only has it robbed the world of opportunity, but it has been, content, you know, continuously and consistently um, fueling the violence against Black trans people, Black queer people. When you erase whole communities, whole experiences, it, it leads to the xenophobia down the road when people can't remember that history and don't know that history. And so now, particularly, you know, there's so much conversation about particularly the murders of Black trans women. You know, this year there have been upwards of 27 as reported by the HRC, by Human Rights Campaign. And it's not disconnected from the erasure of our voices and our experiences throughout history within media and, of course, within our families and in our communities. Mm. And, and speaking of, you know, that was kind of the point, right, of the Brooklyn March for Trans Liberation. It was to show that there was a a certain cohort of this movement that was being left behind. And, and it, it is a movement that is trying to showcase the stories of people who have been left behind for too long, right? And, and you led the crowd there, 15,000 people, in a chant of Black trans power, which was really uh, moving to witness. I remember talking to you the day before when you were writing your speech and 
you you would tell me later that that slogan just kind of it came to you not quite in the moment but it it did come to you more or less in the 11th hour right where did that come from and why was it important for people to echo yeah i really wanted something that carried a weight beyond just the slogan of black trans lives matter because at the end of the day It isn't just that we matter, it's that we're fucking brilliant, amazing, sacred, um, and powerful. There's, There's power in our experiences that I don't think that we quite have had space to name, at least collectively, before this moment. I think about the ways that we even just see the world in so many dimensions that I think cis people may never get the chance to. Um, There's so many connections that we see between our liberation and other folks' liberation that it would behoove cis folks to understand. It would behoove white folks to understand that they have so much they can learn from our experience and not just our experiences of struggle, not just the tragedies of the murders in our communities, And not even just the resilience, right? I mean, it's not so much about the power of finding resilience because in spite of these external forces, it's really the power of being able to not just live, but fight for something better and fight for something better for everyone, not just ourselves. When I think about the ways that cis men, you know, and and masculine folk in general are harmed by restrictive ideas of gender. I know that there is a different way for them to even move through the world. And it's going to be connected to how Black trans people provide um, a framework forward. When I think about cis women and, and their struggles, within a patriarchal system. It's Black trans folks that are able to provide a different dimension, able to bring together the issues of race, the issues of gender, many times the issues of access that are tied to capitalism that I don't think most people think about all at once unless they've had this particular experience. Right. It's obviously such a hard thing to swallow, right? Because we talk about this fight for liberation and and how the fight for trans liberation is ultimately a fight for our collective liberation. Um, and at the same time, you know, we have a society where it seems like the rights of transgender people all over the world are under attack. And specifically in America, you pointed to the deaths of over 25 um, trans women so far this year. Last year, when we worked together at Out Magazine, the American Medical Association declared an epidemic of violence against transgender women of color because over 20 women had been reported killed or murdered. And and that prompted you to publish the Trans Obituaries Project, which was uh, one of our covers for the At 100. Um, and you recently won the Glad Media Award for that very important feature. And first of all, I just want to say congratulations. It was more than well-deserved. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
for your encouragement and your support on helping me get it done. You know, it was a tall order some days. Um, there, there were so many, so many things to write, so many moving pieces. But of course, there was so much um, emotionality that went into that work that went into yeah. interviewing the families and loved ones of the people we lost. I, I remember it and and I've never gotten the chance to ask you this before, so I'm sorry to put you on the spot here. But it feels I would I feel it would be remiss, you know, in a conversation about faith and spirituality, you know, not to ask you how working on something like that and, and obviously working in a movement space that's fighting for life as a right, as a human right, what it has taught you about the sanctity of life and maybe even your perception of death. Yeah, you know, I think about this work, particularly of elevating the names of Black trans people who've been murdered in the lineage of the work of someone like Ida B. Wells, who was discussing lynching at the turn of the 20th century. And I think that it's important. The other piece of that is that I, I think when we do elevate these names, when we do chant these names, I mean, that is something so tied to African history, particularly. The act of chanting is is within the the African tradition. And so there's something so powerful about remembering people's names and lives in that way. When we hear about another Black trans person or trans person in general being killed, in some ways, there there's still that record of our existence. Um, and so I, I think that it's important for us to figure out how we elevate people when they die, but of course, don't strip them of their humanity. And that is hard. Mm. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, we did it. it. I really appreciate it. (laughs) And I love you very much. Thank you. I love you too. Thank you. We're living in a moment when we're challenged to confront the things we've been spoon-fed over the years. Now, the things we are taught, the things we believe, and even the people we revere are seen in a new light. This is a challenge to our belief systems, and that's a good thing. We're called to do better for each other. Now is also the time to challenge what we've been taught about gender, who assigns it, who dictates its rules, and how its roles shrink, or worse, erase many of us. I know what it's like to be denied God based on who I am. And while that experience had its fair share of trauma, it also led me to a new path. To find family among friends, celebration in the self, and liberation from all of society's expectations of what it means to be a man. By straying from the confines of what society, and supposedly God, wanted me to be, I was able to find who I really am. So I can only imagine our world if we could once again learn to see what people like Jaina Rosero and Raquel Willis offer for what it truly is, a blessing. 
Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Our producers are Adriana Cargill and Elisa Gutierrez, with production support from Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa, and our executive producers are Lyra Smith and Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening. If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512.24 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards.